Well, good morning. I'm Robbie, one of the teaching pastors here. And as Paul said, we began our Easter series this morning. It's almost hard to believe it, but I'm glad that we'll be able to spend this time thinking afresh about the gospel. So if you would, turn in your copies of Scripture with me to John chapter 18. We're in verses 1 through 14 this morning. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. And let's pay attention to the reading of God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Brook Kedron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests, and the then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. For shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our key truth this morning, what I'm hoping we walk away with after considering these verses, is this. By offering up his life in obedience to the Father... Jesus bears witness to the truth that no one who belongs to him will be lost. By offering up his life in obedience to the Father, Jesus bears witness to the truth that no one who belongs to him will be lost. And I think there's a question for us as we ponder these things. That is, what gives you confidence that the things that you believe are true? Confidence that the things that you believe are true. Perhaps you're thinking, well, that's kind of a funny question to ask after reading this text. Some of you may be thinking, well, forget the text, that's just a funny question to ask. It may be, but I think we need to consider what what gives us confidence that we are knowing and believing and walking in the truth. What gives us confidence that we know and believe and walk in the truth? And that's worth pondering because the Apostle John seems to have been a disciple who was very eager to know the truth. Augustine, the church father from about the fourth century, he observed that Peter and John both represent two sides of the Christian life. You can think of them that way. Peter, we know Peter, he represents the missional side. Peter was always impetuous, always sticking his foot in his mouth, but man, he was ready to go. He was ready to go and do something in the name of Jesus. So Peter represents the missional side. John, on the other hand, seems to represent the contemplative side. For John, he wants the world to stop what it's doing and to take notice of Jesus, to think about who he is and what he has done, what he has said. And I think there's a lot of truth in Augustine's observation. 
Well, one clue that Augustine was on the right track with this is that John's gospel emphasizes to a degree that is greater than, or at least more explicit than in all the other gospel accounts that we have. John emphasizes that Jesus is the answer to the search for truth. And just to give you a flavor of this, I'm going to go through a a list of references. You don't have to look these up, but just to, to get a sense of how true this is, how much of an emphasis this is for Jesus. Hear how he describes Jesus. First, he begins to introduce us to Jesus by describing him as the Word, the image of the invisible God full of grace and truth, chapter 1, verse 14. And then he says that Jesus is sent from the Father, seeking worshipers in spirit and truth, chapter 4, verse 24. And then he introduces us to the ministry of John the Baptist, who pointed others to Jesus, and in that way, John says, he bore witness to the truth. Chapter 5, verse 33. And then Jesus says that you can trust his testimony because both he and the Father are testifying together and they only ever speak truth. Chapter 8, verse 16. And then Jesus says, astonishingly, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6. And he says that he will send the disciples the Holy Spirit who will lead them into all truth. Chapter 16, verse 13. And then he prays for us, his people, so that we may be sanctified in the truth. Chapter 17, verse 17. And then he says that his purpose, his his own summary of his purpose in the world was that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Chapter 19, verse 37. And he says in that same verse that everyone who is of the truth listens to him. And this is so much an emphasis of the Apostle John's that his favorite way of describing the Christian life, each of the apostles seems to have had a a favorite way of describing what it is to be a Christian. We know Paul's, so often he talks about putting on Christ, putting off the old man and putting on Christ. Well, for John, it was walking in the truth. And John also reminds us how we can not walk in the truth. In 1 John 1, he says, if we say we do not sin, we lie and Do not practice the truth. So in the middle of all of our confusion, in the middle of all of our searching for answers, stands Jesus. And his witness to us today is this. I am the truth. Look to me, and you will see truth. Listen to me, and you will hear truth. Follow me, and you will walk in the truth. Confess your need of me, and you will practice the truth. And I think we need to hear this again and again and again, because I think that there is probably very little in the world today that is harder for us as Christians, even for us as Christians, to really believe that Jesus is the truth. And there are two ways to express that difficulty. For some of us this morning, we are wrestling, is the story, did he really say all the things that I'm told he said? Is it really true that if I put my trust in him, my faith in him, if I confess my need for him? I will never taste death. Is the story about Jesus true? And then what happens? Then you meet him. Not as a proposition, not merely as an argument, but as a person. And you believe. There are lots of, and we could get into them, and we'll get into some of them over the series, over the Easter series. There are lots of really good historical reasons to believe in Jesus, to believe in the resurrection. That is one of the greatest and most well-attested and just in in history, well-founded things to believe, that Jesus really rose from the dead. And there are lots of really good reasons to believe. But that is fundamentally not why we are Christians. We are Christians because we've seen Jesus. We've met him. 
We know him. And we become not advocates for a system, not rebuilders of a culture, not even defenders of a faith, but witnesses to a person. Because we've seen him, and we know him, and he's real to us. And so for those of us who've answered yes to the question, is the story about Jesus true? We continue to wrestle with this other question. Is the truth about Jesus sufficient for my life? Is the truth about Jesus really sufficient for my life? I mean, what, after all, does it mean that Jesus is the truth when you're trying to learn your times tables? What does it mean that Jesus is the truth when you're trying to raise your children? What does it mean that Jesus is the truth when you're trying to get along with your spouse? What does it mean that Jesus is the truth when you're trying to be a friend? What does it mean that Jesus is the truth when you wake up on Sunday morning and you just don't want to go to church? What does it mean that Jesus is the truth when you're trying to pray? What does it mean that Jesus is the truth when you're reading your Bible and it just doesn't capture your heart like you want it to capture your heart? Or what does it mean that Jesus is the truth when you're reading your Bible and you just want to believe, but it's hard and you struggle and you doubt? What does it mean that Jesus is the truth? Is the truth about Jesus really sufficient for my life? And there's a danger here because we live in a day that is increasingly characterized by a hermeneutic of suspicion. Here's what I mean by that, hermeneutic of suspicion. I mean that we are encouraged, the atmosphere is just thick with it, from left, right, and center. No matter where you land on the political spectrum or wherever you view yourself to be in the world, you are encouraged to adopt a posture of skepticism. And oh yes, there's good reason for that. We live in a day and age in which many of the institutions that we once trusted to convey truth to us have, well, they've shot their credibility in many ways. Many people no longer seem to be formed by the responsibilities that they have, but rather to use them as a platform to express their own opinions. So we really wrestle with skepticism. We see the world going in a certain way. We're anxious about the culture, and we're always on the lookout, or at least we're encouraged to always be on the lookout for the real story, the real powers to confront. And so many of us, if we're not careful, can look at the world very cynically. We can ask with Pilate that age-old question, what is truth? And then we meet Jesus. We see him, not as a proposition mainly, not as an argument, but as a person. That Jesus is the truth means that my most fundamental need in whatever I'm doing, whether it's learning my times tables or learning how to be a friend or learning to pray or wrestling with scripture, my most fundamental need is to be near to Jesus, to see Jesus. I need to hear his voice. My most fundamental need is to give up the hermeneutic of suspicion that I'm so often encouraged to adopt and to approach him with humility. If we say we have no sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. My most fundamental need is to know that, not as a, merely as a proposition, but to know that as a reality, that I witness to the one who is real, the one I was made for, the one I can come into worship. So therefore, let us pay close attention to the Gospel of John so that we may hear and believe the answer. Jesus is the truth. If we want to know the truth, we must know Jesus. If we want to walk in the truth, we must walk with Jesus. If we want to see the truth, we must look at Jesus. If we want to guard against being deceived, we must believe in Jesus. And we can ask that question, oh, what if, what if, what if I am deceived? What if, what if believing in Jesus isn't enough? What if, not, what if seeing Jesus isn't enough? I hope we see Jesus in these verses. When we look at Jesus with faith, we see that he is a trustworthy witness of the truth. 
Oh, but what if I'm lost in my struggles? What if I'm lost in my suffering? Is Jesus enough? I hope we see Jesus. Because in these verses particularly, we see Jesus as the suffering witness who bears witness to the truth that no one who belongs to him will be lost. Let's see it in the text. In verse 1, John indicates that what he describes, what he's about to describe, follows from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. We saw or heard the first part of that high priestly prayer and our assurance of pardon. We'll hear the rest of it as we go throughout our series. I know what a prayer that is. We don't know where exactly Jesus prayed this prayer, but John seems to indicate that the 11 disciples probably heard it or at least overheard it. And that would not have been an experience they would ever have forgotten. You may wonder sometimes, like I do sometimes, what does Jesus talk about with the Father when he's looking at me? John 17. What is, what is Jesus and the Father's attitude towards me? It's one of the reasons Jesus prayed this prayer out loud so we could hear him. So we would know eternal life is knowing Jesus and the Father who sent him. And then John tells us that Jesus and the disciples crossed the place where David, King David, had to cross when Absalom, his son, rose up in rebellion against him, and Ahithophel, his closest advisor, betrayed him and was treacherous towards him. And David, fleeing the capital, crosses the book Kedron. So this is filled with symbolism. Here, Jesus, great David's greater son, enters into the valley of deceit and treachery to overcome that deceit and treachery for his people. And then see, especially in verse four, Jesus comes forward. And I love this, knowing all that would happen to him. Many commentators and scholars, they wonder, why did John tell us so little about the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Because we read so much about that in particularly Matthew and Mark. The agony of Jesus in the garden, sweating drops of blood, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But John mentions none of this. Because John's emphasis here is not so much on the poignancy of Jesus' suffering, but the majesty of what he's about to undergo. John presents to us here Jesus as the one who steps forward like a witness, to witness to the truth. John presents to us Jesus as the one who in great power hides his power, in great strength hides his strength for the salvation of his people so that no one who belongs to him will be lost. Jesus didn't run in terror, though he knew far more than anyone with the exception of his father, all that it was going to cost him to save his people. He knew far more than anyone the agony that was before him. And he prayed that great prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Oh, the submission of Jesus to his Father's will. It's a difficult thing, I think, in our day to see the majesty of Jesus's submission here, to see the majesty of Jesus's gentleness. So often it is the repository of hidden strength, though in our day, in our world, is regarded as weakness. I remember one time somebody asked the famous atheist, now late Christopher Hitchens, Christopher, we, we get that just as a theoretical exercise, you have, have no truck with Christianity, but you really seem to have a personal animus for Jesus. Like, what explains that? And he was very honest. He said, the reason I hate Jesus so much as a historical figure and what I know of him, the reason I hate Jesus so much is that he was weak. 
And you know what he called his followers? He called them sheep. How could anyone abide that? Sheep are weak. Sheep exist to be fleeced. How could anyone follow a savior who was weak and called his followers sheep? It's astonishing when we really think about it. But it's astonishing that we as Christians would be so hesitant to describe ourselves as sheep. Jesus as the truth, Jesus as he stands before us in the garden, is weak. He hides his power for the salvation of his people. And if we're uncomfortable with that, if we refuse to see Jesus in his weakness, how will we see him as the truth? See this even in Jesus' twice-repeated question, whom are you looking for? That's not just a question to ensure that they arrest the right man, but a question inviting deeper reflection about the man that is standing right before him, before them and the witness he is about to give by offering up his life. Why don't we learn more from gentle Jesus? Many of us, and I feel it too sometimes, many of us despise that, but he was proud of it. He said, I am gentle and weak and meek and lowly of heart. Do you remember James and John? The name he gave them, Boanerges, sons of thunder. They were ready to go and get stuff done. Remember the time that they asked Jesus to call down thunder from heaven on the Samaritans who didn't receive them? And Jesus responded to them, you don't know what spirit you are of. You don't know what spirit you are of. I didn't come to destroy men, but to save them. But we struggle to see it. We struggle to see the hiding of strength as power. We see it rather often as pathetic. But if you call it pathetic, how will you see Jesus as the truth? Do you remember what he said in Matthew to Peter? Don't you know, Peter, I can call 12 angels, 12 legions of angels to come. I can wipe these guys off the face of the earth in a moment. But then how will it be fulfilled, all that has been written, that the Son of Man should suffer for his people? There is purpose in his restraint. There is purpose in his restraint. So, what are we looking for? Whom are we looking for? When we come before Jesus, whom are we looking for? Do we see Jesus in his gentleness and his restraint? Are we pointing others to Jesus in his gentleness and his restraint? One of the things I think we can think about in this Easter series, and that so often I think we fail to think about, especially when it comes to evangelism, is that we're inviting people to come and to see Jesus, to meet with Jesus, not merely to fill them, their heads with arguments for why they should believe, but to fill them with a sense of who he really is, which is why one of the best means of evangelism that you have is really to invite people to church. I think so often we are hesitant to do that because we think we have to go through certain steps. We think with our neighbors we have to first convince them of the truth or at least get them to a questioning state, and then we'll invite them to church to give them a real full experience then. But no, we're inviting people to see Jesus. And to see him as we lift up his name and praise and say, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for me and bringing me near, washing me clean of my sin, drawing me near to your covenant of grace. So whom are we looking for? And whom are we pointing others to? And by the way, when we think about gentle Jesus, sometimes we can think about that episode. So often we go in our minds here of Jesus in the temple, cleansing the temple. His action with cleansing the temple with his purpose to suffer for his people. Because after he cleanses the temple, the Jews come to him and they say, what gives? Why are you doing this? What sign are you going to give that shows the authority that you have to cleanse the temple in the way that you've done it with that violence, casting that whip of cords all around? And you know what he says? Tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. 
They didn't understand that he was talking about his body. In other words, the authority, the, the reason he did that is because he knew he was gonna go to the cross to die for the very people he was casting out of the temple so they could be invited back in. So this is not an episode for us to say, well, there we go, we can be zealots, we can be violent. No, here Jesus shows by his, by his zeal for his temple that he's gonna go to the cross for his people, that he's gonna be the suffering witness for his people. I see this even in Jesus' response to their question, I am he, to Judas and the band of soldiers. By the way, this is probably a fairly large crowd, maybe about 100 soldiers. And some of them probably are the very same soldiers who had earlier been sent to arrest Jesus in chapter seven of John. And they come back to the authorities, not having arrested Jesus, and the authorities say, well, what gives? And their response to him, to the authorities, is really shocking. They say, no one ever spoke like this man. That's a strange thing to say to your boss when he asks you, why haven't you done the work that I've sent you to do? Well, no one ever spoke like this man. But that was their testimony. How can we arrest him? He had such authority. His testimony was so compelling. No one ever spoke like this man. He doesn't speak like the teachers that we know, the rabbis that we know. Who is this man? So here they are again. And he says to them, I am he. And those words are enough to cause them to step back and to fall over and fall to the ground, which reminds us, it can't help but to remind us of the way that the patriarchs and the prophets fell immediately to the ground whenever they met the living God. And here they fall before him. And it also reminds us of the way that God calls Israel in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. Some of these we'll use for our call to worship in the weeks ahead. And he says, I am he who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am he who holds you up with my own right hand and my own strength. I am he who is your redeemer, the holy one of Israel. I am he, look to me, turn away from your false idols that have no life in them. And that causes God's people to fall before him in wonder and in awe. And not only does Jesus' response cause the band of soldiers to step back in amazement, they actually fall to the ground. They're amazed by Jesus and his firmness of purpose in the face of an arrest that from their perspective is almost certainly gonna lead to death. But here is Jesus hiding his strength, hiding his power so that none of those who belong to him will be lost. Everything about Jesus, his words, his character, especially also in verse eight, when Jesus says, if you seek me, let these men go, referring to the disciples. And John explains what this means. This was to fill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And so John sees in this episode an illustration of the larger purposes of Jesus' suffering to save his people. Here is substitution at its highest. Jesus substitutes himself for the disciples. Take me and let these men go. From here on out, in contrast to the intimacy that they had enjoyed with Jesus in the upper room and that final Passover, in contrast to the intimacy that they had been invited to overhear in Jesus' high priestly prayer, now Jesus has to be separated from them and separated from all mankind to drink the cup of the Father's wrath so that he can say, let these men go so that none whom you have given me will be lost. Oh, but poor Peter. <laughs> poor Peter, who was so loved by Jesus, he did not get it. And so in verse 10, we see almost as it were an attempted cross-examination of Jesus' witness of suffering in Peter's violent action. Peter attempts to stop the arrest. He draws his sword 
and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. And by the way, it's not for nothing that that little detail is in our Bibles, that the servant's name was Malchus. That indicates probably that John had some familiarity with the household of the high priest. He probably knew these folks. And probably at the time that he was writing, Malchus was still alive, so that people who received John's book, his letter, could look up Malchus. They could go to Malchus and say, did this really happen? And Malchus could say to them, yeah, look at the scar. Peter cut off my ear, can you believe it? So this really happened. And now Peter misunderstood several things, as especially indicated by Jesus' rebuke in verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? First, he misunderstood the nature of Jesus' witness, not by the sword, but by suffering. That's a danger for us, too. Often we can misunderstand the nature of Jesus' witness. He's the truth, all right. He's the witness who witnesses to the truth by his suffering. And he also misunderstood his own need to be saved by Jesus, not by the sword, but by faith. You and I, we have a human nature that is so bad and so corrupted and so rotten, religious though we may be, morally strict, serious though we may be, right about so many things as we may be, you and I have a human nature that is so bad that there is nothing to be done for it except that it be destroyed, and we be given a new nature in Christ. And Peter misunderstood this. He misunderstood his own need to be saved by Jesus, not by the sword, but by faith. And he misunderstood also how Jesus was going to triumph, not by the sword, but by his death and resurrection. Hmm. Would we lean into this this season? That we be people who know that Jesus triumphed for us, for his people, so that none of us who believe in him will be lost by his death and resurrection. Not by power, not by might, but by hiding his strength and power, by submitting to his Father, so that we would know his witness to the truth. Like Peter, we often think that we witness to the truth best by displays of strength, and sometimes even by violence. But the witness of Jesus is that the restraint of Jesus is for the salvation of his people. It's the heart of the truth. I, I struggled for so long to really believe this, to see this, and then I heard an illustration by the Chinese pastor Wang Yi. And Wang Yi has skin in the game because right now he's serving a nine-year prison sentence in China because he refused to register his church with the authorities. And a little bit before he was arrested by the authorities, he gave a sermon to his people, and he said, do you know why the Chinese Communist Party persecutes us? And they said, because they don't believe in Jesus. And he said, yeah, that's true. But more fundamentally, they don't believe that we believe in Jesus. Oftentimes, that's the mechanism for persecution. They look at Christians and they say, you may say, that you would let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth, power, prestige, money. You may really say that, but there's an angle there. We live in a world of skepticism. I don't believe that you really believe in Jesus. And so they have to find out. How are they gonna find out? They gotta persecute the church. And then, if you really can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, they know well, you really do believe in Jesus. So the first thing that we prove to the world by our suffering is that we believe in Jesus. And if we run away from suffering, if we make it our aim to live the Christian life so 
that we never have to suffer, or if the main thing that the world hears from us is not that I live in the truth, the more I confess my need of Jesus, my own sin, and run to him with repentance and faith in humility, but if mainly what they hear from us is, well, we have the right answers and you're all wrong, then we may miss an opportunity to witness to the truth. The world often persecutes Christians because they don't believe that we truly believe the gospel. And when we're anxious about persecution or we seek to establish ourselves by strength, we lose the power of faithful witness through suffering. We become just like the world. So if we object with Peter to Jesus' suffering, we will also object to our own suffering, which Jesus and the Apostle Paul have both told us is the essence of sharing in Jesus' glorious death and resurrection. And so let's hear Jesus' rebuke. Let's sheathe our swords and ponder the witness of Jesus in his suffering. And then the soldiers, they take Jesus to Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. And we know from other sources, historical sources, that Annas was probably the high priest just before Caiaphas, and probably he had been deposed by the Roman authorities. And so he was very likely the patriarch of a priestly, aristocratic, and influential family. And then John includes this note about Caiaphas, because Caiaphas had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Oh, Caiaphas. Oh, cynical Caiaphas. Notice two things in this remark. Disbelief in Jesus can often lead us to speak better than we know to our own condemnation. It is often possible to speak the truth and for that truth to do you no good because you don't know Jesus. You don't see Jesus. You don't relate it to Jesus and his suffering witness. But don't learn the wrong lesson here. Jesus was not the victim of circumstances beyond his control, and he wasn't at the mercy of influential people. Despite outward appearances, he was the answer to the people's need, to our need for salvation. Oh, the majesty of Jesus in his suffering. Do we know him? Do we see him? The one thing that I most need in the whole world is to know Jesus, to share in his glorious death and resurrection by living in him, by living in him in such a way that I live a kind of dying life and living death. And that is the witness that Jesus witnesses. He willingly offers up his life in obedience to the Father so that no one who believes in him will be lost. Here's how J.H. Bobbing sums up how, to re- how we are to respond to Jesus as witness of the truth. This is very helpful, I think. He says, at one time, the true followers of the, of the truth possessed three distinct traits, knowledge, peace with God, and holiness. And the tremendous loss we suffered through sin also came in three forms. Our knowledge was affected by errors and ignorance. Our peace with God turned into, into hostility and bitterness and our holy character degenerated into filthy desire and self-indulgence. Over against these three rises up the human being Jesus, in whom God dwells, who himself is God, in whom we see God himself. We can spend much time thinking about God, making all sorts of images and ideas regarding him, but when we find ourselves in the tightest spot ever, or when we start to discover what life is really all about, then it suddenly dawns on us, Now I know how I must visualize God because he comes to us as Jesus. 
in the moments when life presents itself in its truest form, we need only to look to the true God, the one we can see with our own eyes, the one whom we know when we look straight at Jesus. Amen. Well, a question for us is this. In what ways has the Holy Spirit used you in your various spheres of influence to bear witness to the truth that no one who belongs to Jesus will be lost? One of the things that is amazing about the Christian life is that Jesus witnesses to us of the truth and then he invites us to follow him in being witnesses with him of the truth. And so what are some ways that we have been given the opportunity, the privilege to witness to the world that no one who belongs to Jesus will be lost? Do we know Jesus in his suffering? Do we see Jesus in his suffering? Do we see that the greatest need for us is to know him, not as a proposition mainly, not as an argument for what's wrong with the world, not even as a system or a therapeutized technique to get along this week a little bit better, but as a witness to a person so that we know him, that he comes to us in his majesty, Jesus, gentle Jesus, who hides his power for the salvation of his people. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so what a sweet thing it is for us that we get to come to the table this morning and to see here a picture of the very witness that Jesus gives us in these verses. Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath so that he could give to us and he would be destroyed. We could not handle it. But instead of that wrath, Jesus comes and he takes that cup upon himself so that we are given the cup of the new covenant, the cup of life in his name. And because Jesus offered up his life in obedience to the Father, and because the Father resurrected him to new life, imperishable, everything is going to be okay. And more than okay, everything is going to be made new, because no one who belongs to him will be lost. And Jesus knows our weakness. He remembers that we are dust. He knows that we often struggle with doubt. And in his word, he comes to us to meet us personally so that we would know him, really that we would know him. We hear him and see his witness to the truth and we believe. And then he gives to us this table as a sign and a seal of our union and communion with him, of that reality. Not to make something happen automatically, but to witness to our eyes and to our taste and to our touch that we really have by faith Jesus. He really is our friend. And he died not only for others, but for me also. And he does not lose any who belong to him. So don't you go thinking that this table is a substitute for seeing Jesus. It won't do you any good if you approach it like that. And don't you go thinking that the power to know Jesus is in the elements all by themselves or anything even I can say about them. No, nothing like that. Know the power to know Jesus, to see him, to hear him, and to believe him is by the Holy Spirit alone. So the thing that connects our receiving these elements and growing in our faith is the Holy Spirit. And he takes the faith in our heart as we come to him with repentance, as we come to him even with our doubts, and he uses these elements to make real to us, to make visible to us what we have by faith, namely Jesus himself. And so that's why I get to say that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, something that he knew his disciples would always have near them, as we have near to us, and he broke that bread. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. All of you drink of it. And in these ways, he was showing us that we really have him if we come to him with faith. We really see him if we come to faith. And as we do that, we see his suffering witness, his hidden strength, hidden for us so that no one who belongs to him would be lost. So those who are helping to serve the elements, if they'd come forward, a few instructions for us before we partake of the elements. We're gonna pass down two trays each row, and there is bread in one tray and a cup in the other. For those of you who prefer to just have the, what we affectionately around here call the communion MRE, that is the wafer inside the cup, you can just take that. For those of you who'd like the bread and the cup, take both of those elements and then hold them, and we'll partake of these together. But before we do that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we're grateful, Lord, for the gospel and for the new way that we get to see Jesus every Sunday and know that we really do see him, not merely as arguments, Lord, not merely as more information, but as a person, Lord, who witnesses in his suffering to us that we belong to him, that our sin really is covered by his blood, Lord, that you love us and you've drawn us into fellowship with him so that no one who belongs to Jesus would be lost. And so, Lord, we ask, in these elements, help us to see Jesus. Nourish our faith in him so that we would be willing to suffer with him knowing it will be worth it because everything's gonna be okay because he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death and the devil and we belong to him and no one who does belong to him will be lost. So do this for us in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in his name, amen.